Believe it or not, this is going to be the last week of our series on the kingdom of God. I look back, I think it started either the last week of January or the first week of February, but it is, it is going to be over uh, after this week. I hope you have, been, have felt that you have been built up spiritually over the last nine months or whatever it's been. I know that I have been as, as I have studied and prepared and, and presented and interacted with you about these things. Um, the topic is not going to go away. We're not going to not talk about the kingdom of God because if you talk about the Bible, pretty much on every page you see the kingdom of God. But as far as specifically uh, focusing on it, that's going to end after today. And I will tell you at this point, you can pray for me because um, I sometimes don't find myself in this position very often. But at this point, only God knows what we're going to be talking about next Sunday. Um, I also, I made a promise to you several months ago, back in the spring, I think, uh, when I skipped something. I skipped over one particular passage in, in Matthew, um, so I want to go back to that today. I'm going to keep that promise. Uh, also, last week was kind of odd because you might recall that I read to you an entire chapter of Scripture as we began our time together, which was a pretty long Scripture passage for me. It was about 40 verses long. Uh, this week is going to be precisely the opposite of that. I am pretty sure that you are going to be able to memorize the Scripture passage for this morning uh, in fact, you probably already have. You probably already know it in multiple versions of the Bible. And I'm going to invite you to turn to it in a second, but before you do, I'm just going to recite it for you because it is literally three words long. Ready? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Or if you're kind of a King Jamesy type of person, thy kingdom come. Right, so there you already know it in two different versions at least. Um, technically speaking, this is Matthew 6, 10a, the first part of the verse. So if you want to turn there, we're we'll going to refer a couple of times to some of the surrounding verses. It is obviously part of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but, but here's my goal for this morning. I just want you to walk out of here today with a couple ideas. I'm going to talk to you for a while about what this phrase means, and I want you to take some ideas home with you and it's probably going to be different ideas for different people because you're in different places in your walk with the Lord and in your prayer life. But, I, but those ideas that you leave with today should be about specific ways to grow your prayer life. Uh, specific ways that you can pray for God's kingdom to come in your life, in the life of other people around you, in the life of your church, in the life of your community, and uh, in the world. And what I want to do literally is to look at this phrase one word at a time. So this is a real simple outline. Right? There are three words, and there are basically three points. Okay, So we're going to start with the first point, which is the first word, which we're going to use the NIV, not the King James word. Okay, We're going to use the word your. So that's the first place we're going to stop, your. Your kingdom come. This is a very simple word, your, but the word is incredibly important because it tells us the identity of the person to whom we are talking and whose kingdom we want to come. Your kingdom come. Now to find out who we're talking about here, we need to go back a verse in Matthew 6 and we will see that this prayer is addressed to someone called our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And, and the first thing I want to say about this is going to sound maybe a little bit negative, but it's important to note that not everybody can pray this prayer. Not everybody can pray it. It's only relevant to people who have God as their Father. 
In fact, it's worth noting that in the, in the very early church, whenever they would recite this prayer, as they did sometimes, they would actually exclude any non-Christians who happened to be present, just as they excluded them from taking communion. And I know that sounds kind of harsh and maybe a little bit you know, exclusive, since much of the world has adopted this prayer as their own, right? Everybody knows this prayer. And so many high school sports teams get in the big circle before the game, right? Before they run out onto the field and they say the Lord's Prayer, which gives the coach a chance to kind of sneak Jesus into his player's experience a little bit, as it were. And that's fine. I can sympathize with that desire. But you know what? Strictly speaking, this prayer is not available to everybody in that circle. This prayer is not available to many, maybe even most of the people who pray it these days, or who at least recite it. You say, well, why not? I mean, can't everybody call God Father? Well, it's true that in a few places in the Old Testament, God is called a father to people. Sometimes it's a figure of speech because he treats people like a father would. Sometimes it's just in the sense that he's the creator, the, the source of all things. As Paul actually says in Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament, talking to the people of Athens, Paul says we are his offspring. So as God is the source, in a sense he's the father of everyone. But the word father here in Matthew 6.10 isn't used like that. It's used very differently. Jesus, when Jesus was talking to God, you might realize, you probably do, that he used this term exclusively. This is pretty much any, this is what he called God. He called God Father. You'll have a tough time going through the Gospels and finding an instance where Jesus called God anything but Father. The only one I can think of was when he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was a very specific reason he did that. But otherwise, pretty much every time, it was Father. And that was shocking enough at the time. But then he's constantly inviting his disciples to address God in the same way, which is even more shocking. Because how can a human being dare to address the Creator and the Lord of the universe as Father? Just how revolutionary is that? How could we even say that word? Well, it's only possible because of God's incredible love for us and because of what he did for us on the cross of Calvary, where God the Father gave his only begotten Son, turned his back on him as he died, allowing him to experience all the hellish consequences of our sin, and then with that sin taken out of the way, invited us, literally, to join his family. Think about that. God forgave us because of what Jesus did. If our faith is in Christ, our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. But just because God forgave us does not mean that he had to adopt us. And yet he did. He did. And it isn't just some kind of cold legal adoption either. The word father here in the Greek it, it, most commentators think it is probably a translation of the Aramaic word Abba, which is what they think Jesus probably said when he was actually introducing this prayer. And that word Abba is notoriously hard to translate. Um, some have suggested Daddy. Others maybe something like Papa. But whatever term we use, the, the idea is one of, of real intimacy and relationship. It is a very simple, unguarded, just childlike word almost it's totally different it's totally different than how everybody else was trying to address god at the time 
Because when you address God in prayer, what everybody pretty much did back then was they tried to pile up a whole bunch of really fancy words, maybe in order to kind of butter up God or show him as much honor as we could so that maybe he'll answer our prayer. And so they concentrated on that. And so people were like, oh, almighty Lord and master of creation, great and sovereign God of the heavens. They go on and on. Jesus says, look, if you're trusting in me, if you're trusting in me, you don't need to do that. What you need is Father. Father. One author I was reading said it very bluntly. He said, the Christian name for God is Father. It's Father. Back when my children were in middle school, um, back then I I hadn't been at the church very long, and so I, I don't do this anymore because I have found that I'd rather have three 10-minute conversations after a Sunday morning service than 300 three-second conversations after a Sunday morning service, and so I don't stand at the back and shake everybody's hand anymore, but I used to do it back in the day, and I would be in the Welcome Center trying to shake everybody's hand and say hi to them, and my kids would sneak into the line, or they'd sneak up behind me, and they'd come up, they both do this at times, they'd come up and they'd shake my hand. Before I knew it, I'm shaking my kid's hand, and they'd go, hi, how you doing, Pastor Paul? Like that. And um, I must say, that always kind of annoyed me. And, and I, they were making fun of me. And I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, there goes dad, the big senior pastor guy. You know, he's working the room again. Let's, let's go knock him down off his pedestal and remind him that mom still needs him to do the dishes when he gets home. You know, it was that kind of a thing. Um, so that, that didn't, I, it didn't bother me because it was disrespectful or anything like that because, you know, it was just they were making fun. Um, but what bugged me was that I didn't want my kids to call me Pastor Paul. I didn't want the title with them. I just wanted them to call me dad, such that it even bothered me when they joked about it. And if you're a father, you might understand that desire. It is possible for your children, in the way that they address you, dads, to be both intimate and respectful at the same time. It is, right? In fact, that's what we're after, right? Isn't that what we want? That's what God wants, too, and that's what we're after when we approach God in prayer. You see, most of us tend to fall off one side or the other. Either we're kind of afraid to boldly address God as father or papa or or dad or whatever, either because of a bad experience with an earthly father or because we we just don't feel worthy or we don't feel forgiven enough. You know, we're still kind of dirty and we're stained and, and so we can't really be that close with God. You know what we forget? That in Christ... Now, this is only true in Christ, but it is true in Christ. In Christ, we are both worthy and forgiven. In Christ. And we are God's children. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, a a lot of us have no trouble addressing God as Father. We say it all the time, but sadly, we are no longer amazed that we're able to call him that. And that's because we have overly humanized God. We've kind of recreated him in our own image like one of us, and we've forgotten that our Father is actually our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. The Creator, yes, the Creator and the Lord of the universe we were reading about today who made all the stars and calls them each by name. Now when you say our Father in heaven, you are not highlighting the distance between you and God. That's not what you're doing. It's not that you're way down here and God's way up there, so He's your Father in heaven. No. When you say our Father in heaven, what you're really highlighting is his position, his authority, his might, his perspective, his ability to see every single need and to accomplish anything that you would ask him. He is the king, 
And when we pray for his kingdom, it's totally amazing to say this, but what we're doing is we're praying for our dad to come and take his rightful throne. Isn't that cool? Now let me say something else about this word your before we go on. Because the other thing about the word your is that it's not the word my, which is, that's kind of simple, right? But you know what I'm getting at? Your kingdom come, I think it was um, Alan Redpath that said this, your kingdom come also means my kingdom go. So the prayer is not about getting God to be on my page and bending his will to mine. It's actually the other way around. When I invite God and his kingdom into my life and into my world, I am committing myself to follow his agenda and not my own which means a lot of different things at a lot of different times. It means I'm committing, for instance, to forgive people when I don't want to, even though it crucifies my pride. It means that I will take on an unplanned assignment from God, even if it takes away a lot of me time. On the other hand, it means that I will relax and rest sometimes instead of overworking because God told me to. It also means that, that, that I will interrupt my financial or even my career plans sometimes for the sake of his call on my life. It means I will listen to someone else's advice instead of barreling ahead with my own ideas. It means that I will listen to God when he calls out sin in my life that I am either unaware of or have been willfully ignoring. And as I think about this, this praying his kingdom and not my own, it really has a lot to do with one way that I have come over the years to think about loving God. Loving God. Let me explain what I mean by that. I have struggled over the years, and maybe you have too, with, with what it means to love a God who doesn't need anything from me. Right? Because as Christians, and this is rightfully so, when we think about love, we think about you know, the old King James word charity, right? That love is giving, that love is selfless, that love is compassionate and merciful, and and we give of ourselves sacrificially to meet the need of another person, and that's love. But you know what? You can't love God that way. God doesn't need your charity. God doesn't need your compassion. God does not need your mercy. So you can't love him in that way because he doesn't need anything else that you have to to offer either. And yet, I also find this, As I've thought about it more and more, I find that when I love somebody, the things that are important to that person that I love also become important to me. The things things that bring them joy are the things that I learn to appreciate, and the things that hurt them are things that lose any attraction they would have had for me. Why? Because I love them. I want my wife to have a good day at work, not because it's my duty, but because I've come to love what she loves, and I've come to seek her interests and to share her values and to want what she wants. I want my kids to be joyful and fulfilled, to have the desires of their hearts, and I grieve when one of them has a dream that doesn't come true. And I've learned that it's possible to love God this way, too. We love Him in part at least in part, by coming to share his goals, his values, his heartfelt desires for the world and for the people in it. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're actually expressing love to our Heavenly Father because what he values is what we're learning to value. His heart is becoming our heart. Okay. That's your Let's move on to a word you're by, by now very familiar with, right? Kingdom. What is kingdom? 
I should make you do it, right? It's God's rule over God's people in God's place. So let's take a minute and break it down, shall we, just by those three things. Okay, first of all, God's rule. God's rule. Now, have you, when, you do it, when you think about the Lord's Prayer, have you ever had trouble trying to distinguish between your kingdom come and your will be done? Like they kind of get melded together a little bit because it's hard to distinguish them because they both kind of have to do with God getting his way, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. How are those even different? But the more I think about it, the more I'm beginning to, to, to think that the phrase about God's kingdom coming actually includes the one about his will. And, and just maybe, that's why the second time that Jesus gives his disciples this prayer, because he gives it to them twice, the second time is in Luke chapter 11, and in Luke chapter 11, Jesus actually leaves out your will be done. He just says your kingdom come. And I think that's because it's understood to be included in the previous phrase, which means that here in Matthew, what Jesus might be doing is he might be using your will be done to give us more information to describe specifically what it looks like when God's kingdom comes into the world. Because if you think about it, if God's kingdom were to be complete, if it were to come in all of its fullness and all of its completeness, God's will would be done as a matter of course, right? Every time. God's will would happen. Now, it isn't that we shouldn't pray for God's will. Certainly we should. We should pray for God's revealed will, in other words, what God wants, to happen in specific situations for God to make his ways known and for God to bring these things to pass. But when you pray for God's kingdom to come, you need to know that what you're doing is you're taking it a step farther. You're not just praying for God to have his way in this circumstance, you're actually praying for God to take over. You're praying for him to take over. It's his rule. Let me give you an example, because this is kind of abstract. Let's say this. Let's say that at your place of employment, there is a conflict happening, okay? Not that this would ever happen at your place of employment, but there's a conflict happening, and that several people are not getting along with each other. There's been some problem, and things have gotten worse, and now they're even getting even worse, and maybe even some of those people are, that are involved are believers. Maybe you're even one of them. Now, so you want to pray for God's will to be done in this situation. Well, to pray for God's will to be done in this situation is not just to cop out and say, Lord, whatever your will is, have it, and then you're done. That's called lazy prayer. Okay? To pray God's will, God's revealed will, is to pray that this conflict will be resolved in a peaceful and loving and godly way, and that the Christians who are involved will have wisdom and that they will reflect the character of Christ as they deal with this problem. That is a kingdom prayer. That is, that is God's will being done, okay? But to actually pray for God's kingdom to come is a little more radical. Because when you pray for God's kingdom to come, now you're praying for God to take over in the sense that there is so much Jesus influence exerted in your place of work that people just start treating each other differently. That employees and bosses learn to reverence God in the way they treat one another. That, that the company's ethics begin to reflect godly values. That the whole place gets transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. And especially that people in this workplace come to know him as their Lord and Savior. That's a kingdom prayer. And you probably noticed that prayer had a lot to do with people. So we're kind of transitioning to the next point here because God's rule is expressed in and through human beings as they come into his family and as they become kingdom citizens. So it's God's rule over God's people. So praying God's kingdom come also involves directly praying 
for people that you know to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and to come into the kingdom. But it also means praying for God's people themselves. It means praying for the church. It means praying for the church. Praying for the health and the strength and the growth of this local church is a kingdom prayer, big time. Praying for missions, that's a kingdom prayer. Because God's kingdom is expressed through people, and it comes in the hearts of people here and all around the world. Those are kingdom prayers, okay? God's rule over God's people. Lastly, there's the idea of God's place. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for our world, okay? We're praying for our world, praying for things outside of ourselves in our world. Um, But we can also be very specific, and I hope you're very specific, or, or you can start being specific. Pray for God's influence to be felt in your kid's school. Pray for God's influence to be made known in your workplace, in, in the businesses in your community, in your local police department. Pray for teachers. Pray for medical workers. Pray for your elected leaders. Pray for the media. I can pray for the media. Yeah, you can pray for the media. And don't just pray that God will bless them or even set them straight. I know you probably pray that sometimes. But, but pray for, this is the bigger one maybe, pray for God's people, the church, to be such a powerful influence and such a powerful kingdom outpost that it results in changes in the very fabric of society. Changes that result not just in a more pleasant and just world, although we like that, but in many, many people giving their lives to Jesus Christ. Now we need to realize something, and that's that it's hypocritical to pray this prayer unless we ourselves are first surrendered to God and to his rule. And so very often what happens is that kingdom prayer kind of boomerangs back on the person who's doing the praying. You probably experienced this. To pray that God will end the horror of abortion is necessarily to pray that the church will arise and give support to the moms that will choose life and the babies that will be brought into this world as a result. To pray for God to uplift and encourage and protect our local police leads naturally to a challenge to seek God for how we in the body of Christ might provide some of that encouragement and support. To pray for the end of the vicious and divisive rhetoric in our politics and on social media implicitly calls us, the church, to examine our own communication habits in the light of God's call to honesty and to kindness and to what Colossians 4, 6 might call properly seasoned speech. God uses his people to transform a place, but he only uses his surrendered people. Your kingdom. Let's take a look at this last word, come. Your kingdom come. And in this case, I'd like to look very carefully at the meaning and especially the form of the word. So we're going to get kind of technical here, but this, this is a very simple word in the Greek. Um, it's all over the New Testament, but it can carry a whole lot of different meanings. It can, mean, it can mean to come in time, as when we say, I can't wait for Christmas to come. Uh, it can mean come like from place to place, like I can't wait for my grandson to come to my house at Christmas, right? Or it could mean to come into being, or maybe we'd say to be established. And that's, that's what the primary meaning is here. So if, if you want God's kingdom to come, what you want is, is his rule to be established. You want the kingdom of God to come into our experience. You want it to become a present reality in life. 
And what we call the mood of this verb, to, to bring you back to grammar class and whatever grade that was, the, the mood of the verb is interesting as well. This is a third-person imperative, which we don't really have in English. An imperative is a command, right? But it's a third-person imperative, so it's a third person. So we don't, we don't use this a lot in our language, but when we do, we typically say the word let or may. So you'll say, you know, let this happen. Let, let freedom ring. That's a third-person imperative. Or let your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. But it's, it's more than a request. So this is, this, is not, this is not just a sigh for a better future. You know, like when you have a really hard day, you come home at the end of the day, you collapse on the couch, and you say, oh, Lord, may your kingdom come because I've had it with this one. You know, it, it's that, but it's, it's way more than that. This is more than just a wish for the future. You want the kingdom of God to really come. This is not just a, 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 a little soft prayer for a better tomorrow. It's much stronger than that. It's closer to a command. And yet, it's set in the middle of a prayer to the Lord of the universe. So it can't really be a command, right? Because you can't tell God what to do. So if we're not telling God to do something, and we're not politely saying, Lord, if your kingdom would like your kingdom to come, then that would be okay with me, or if it's okay with you, God. If it's not that, it's got to be something in between. So what is it? Uh, I think we should look at the Bible for this, and we have a really good example of a kingdom prayer, in my opinion, maybe the best example in Scripture or close to it, in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the church prays, and what happens is Peter and John have been out preaching, and they've had kind of a run-in with the Jewish authorities, and the Jewish authorities have told them, stop it. Stop preaching in Jesus' name. You can't do this anymore. And so Peter and John come back to the church, and they tell the church what just happened. And so the church gets together, and they pray. And I'm going to read you their prayer. Listen to these words very carefully. Here's what they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. I love, love, love this prayer. Because it not only respects God's lordship over everything, but it also shamelessly calls on him to act on that lordship. And it invites God to use the people who are doing the prayer as part of the answer to the prayer. Did you notice that? I think God liked this prayer too because after they prayed, the whole place where they were praying in shook. So when you pray your kingdom come, listen, you are, you are not telling God what to do. Nor are you making some kind of tentative, sheepish request. What you are doing is aggressively inviting God to do that which he has already promised he will do, and you are putting yourself at God's disposal to be used in the way he answers the prayer. Can I say that again? You are aggressively inviting God to do that which he has already promised he will do, and you are putting yourself at God's disposal to be part of the answer to your own prayer. And the Jerusalem church found the promise they were claiming right in the Bible because they went to Psalm 2 where God warns the plotting and scheming kings of the earth not to mess with, not to get in the way of his Messiah. And they recognized 
that this was both a prophecy and a promise very specifically for their situation, and so they called on God to fulfill it in their time, and he did. Now, one more thing I didn't mention yet about this verb is its tense. It's tense. This, this is a command. It's not a present tense command, which in Greek, a present tense command would be continual or incremental action, just kind of bit by bit. This command is in the aorist tense, which calls for a one-time or simple action. In other words, the prayer is not, let your kingdom come a little more each day, bit by bit, piece by piece. No, this prayer is, Lord, bring it. So when we pray this today in the present age, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, you might say what we're praying for is breakthroughs. Lord, let your rule break through in this city, in this county, in this school, in this workplace, in this hospital room, in this church, in Arnold Farms, in Raven Ridge, at Lexington Middle School. Breakthrough. God, we want to see a change. And, and I'm going to repeat what I've been saying for months now, but we are not calling God to take over in the sense of establishing a Christian school, a Christian county, or a Christian nation. What we are calling for is for God's word to break through in power, for his gospel to be proclaimed and believed, for chains of bondage to be broken, for lies to be revealed, for strongholds to be torn down, and for our Father to do what he has already promised to do through his Son, which is to build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a kingdom prayer. Now, I don't know what you're going to walk away with today. Maybe it's it's a new appreciation for God as your loving Father. Maybe it's a desire to meditate on what it means to love Him by having your heart made more like His. Maybe it's a plan to start praying kingdom prayers over God your community or your school or your workplace or or some other very tangible place. Maybe it's just a freedom to be more bold and confident in, in calling on God to do what he already wants to do by establishing his rule in your life and in your world. Maybe it's that, but but and maybe it's something else. And yet there's there's one last dimension to this word come that we absolutely need to recognize as we close. And I'm pretty sure it's the main reason this verse is in the tense that it's in. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are not merely praying for kingdom breakthroughs in this present age. We are praying for the coming of a one-time event that will happen in the future. And only God knows how far in the future. See, one day, Jesus is coming back here. And God's rule through his people will be made complete in God's place. And at that time, God's place will be, guess what? The whole earth. And as Al Bosenberg shared with you a few weeks ago, God is going to do away with all injustice, all pain and suffering, all crying and mourning. All conflict, all war, all, all strife will be gone. He will wipe away every tear. He will do away with Satan and his corrupt and evil empire. And we will never, ever again have to pray, your kingdom come. We can stop praying that. 
because we will be able to say in the words of Revelation 11.5, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. To pray your kingdom come is to pray for that day to come and to express your dissatisfaction with the current kingdoms of this world. Not just the political kingdoms, but the way that the whole world is currently configured, the way things are done. And it is to call upon the Father to send His Son back here to begin His eternal reign. To say, God, bring it. Because we are ready to receive You. That's the kingdom prayer. But at the same time, if you're like me, that prayer comes with an asterisk. Because there are some people in your life, some who you really love, who don't yet know Jesus in a saving way. And you don't want that day to come before they come to Christ. And so when you pray this kingdom prayer, It's almost an understood challenge to yourself to pray for that person or people and to see what you can do to bring them to your Savior. And and I don't want to put words in God's mouth, but I think there's kind of an asterisk for him too because based on how I understand the Bible, especially in places like Matthew 24 and Acts chapter 1 and, and 2 Peter 3, I can almost hear God answering this your kingdom come prayer with something like this. Yes! Amen. I can't wait for that day either. It's going to be the greatest day ever. And as soon as my gospel of the kingdom is preached as a testimony to all the nations of the world, that day can come. Which means my people still have some work to do. And so part of praying your kingdom come is praying for the gospel to get out to every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the face of the earth and calling on God for breakthroughs all around the world and committing to be part of the answer to that prayer however the, lead, the Lord leads you and your family and your church to get involved. As we get together and we work together to bring back the king. Amen.